Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. Welcome back to Knocked Up, the podcast about fertility and women's health. You are joined as always by me, Geordie Morrison, and Dr. Rayleigh Alou, CREI Fertility Specialist. Starting fertility treatment often takes longer than we would expect. It is not the case that you see your fertility specialist and start the next week. In this episode, we'll talk through step-by-step, day-by-day, the process of undertaking artificial reproductive technology. Australia, what's involved in planning for ART? And for those of you who are not familiar with the term, ART is assisted reproductive treatment. So that can mean anything that helps you get pregnant. It might be ovulation induction, it might be IUI, intrauterine insemination, or it might be IVF, depending on your needs. Specifically for preparing for assisted reproductive treatments that involve a laboratory. So that can be IUI to optimise sperm and time insertion of sperm high in the female genital tract around the time of ovulation Uh, and that's often combined with giving some fertility boosting drugs to get more than one egg involved in the cycle Um, or be it IVF which is a a real teamwork enterprise involving uh, your doctor preparing yourselves for treatment and of course the laboratory team that help us put egg and sperm together in the lab and make embryos Uh, There's actually a lot of regulatory involvement and in Victoria where we practice at Women's Health Melbourne there's state-specific legislation, there's also the Federal Assisted Reproductive Treatment Act that we need to abide by and what is required is actually compulsory pre-treatment counselling. Now that's not needed for egg freeze but it's a mandatory requirement before you have IVF or IUI supported by a laboratory. So what that means is it's just not necessarily you and your doctor making decisions it's also needing to satisfy that legislative requirement so you do have to have a mandatory counseling session and depending on how that goes it's it's not really a you know kind of police person saying can you or can't you have assisted reproductive treatment it's more to make sure that you're emotionally psychologically prepared for assisted reproduction because it can be a bit of a roller coaster And it's really important to make sure that when we're helping grow families through ART that it's in the best interests and well-being of all involved. So that's what the counselling's about. Before you get started, there's the clinical side of it and that involves making sure that firstly the treatment's right for you but also making sure that the treatment is targeted and also that we've prepared you optimally to have the best chance that you can have a success in treatment. So What that involves is a series of pre-treatment investigations. Some of those will be direct in terms of their application in planning your treatment. Some like preconception genetic screening might be 
somewhat incidental <laughs> to your treatment, but that might be useful to anyone planning a pregnancy. So, and those things can take time. In fact, some fertility investigations like carrier types and preconception genetic screening panels, it's not unusual to take six to eight weeks to get a result for those kind of tests. Definitely at the moment, karyotypes are eight-week wait. Why are karyotypes important? Karyotypes are studies of how our chromosomes, which are the structures that we carry our DNA on, are organised. And studying that is important to know if you are more or less likely to make normal eggs and sperm than other people. It's one of those causes of unexplained infertility or infertility associated with recurrent miscarriage that can be silent in that there's nothing about the person that helps us tell they have an abnormal karyotype. So if we don't do the test, we literally have no idea. And if we do the test, the unexplained infertility gains an explanation. So it's one of those things that we really do need to do ideally before we do something like IVF. And it's actually one of the things that might change our minds about what treatment we plan for a patient because when you do have an abnormal karyotype from a female or a male, it can come from male as well, then one of the challenges you'll have is that when you make embryos, a significant proportion of them, whether they form in the body or in the lab, are going to have the wrong DNA combination and won't be able to make a normal baby. So sometimes for couples who have that as a problem that they bring to the table, we choose to do IVF as first line and we choose to genetically test embryos as first line. So it might influence the type of treatment that we decide to do to try and help you. Another important thing in the lead up to preparing for IVF and fertility in general is optimizing the health of egg and sperm and identifying any problems that might be there. And one thing we can do is called antioxidant therapy. We can also take away some negative influences. So reducing alcohol, stopping smoking, which is extremely bad for sperm. It's bad for eggs too, but it's extremely bad for sperm. Correcting some surgical concerns like varicocele, which is varicose veins of the scrotum around the testes. So we might want to make some changes before going down an IVF pathway and taking some time to do that. Just to give you some insight, it takes about 70 days for a man to make a sperm. So if you have your best behaviour and you haven't done it for three months, then it's not necessarily going to impact the sperm that's ejaculated on that day. So sometimes a lead time of two to three months is good of nutritional changes, antioxidant therapy, best behaviour. In terms of eggs, same. It takes about 100 days for an egg to go from resting pool to getting involved in an ovulatory cycle. That's happening all the time. So if we're making lifestyle changes that's going to take 100 days to have impacts on eggs. So the three months preparation for IVF is actually really important. We've talked before about how you have every egg you'll have in your lifetime you were born with. So you can't really affect egg quality. So what impact will we make in that 100 days to eggs? So look, it's actually not true that you can't affect egg quality. What is true is you can't affect how many eggs you have, how many eggs get involved... In terms of what they're doing during a cycle, the environment that we are responding in affects our ability to do what we need to do. And when you're an egg, if you're in a hostile environment or a harsh environment, then you're not going to necessarily be as good at achieving the developmental goals required in making a baby. So 
while we can't necessarily change the individual cell's intrinsic abilities, what we're trying to do with things like antioxidant therapy is making sure that as that egg matures, it's doing so in the optimal environment so that that gives it its best chance of not making a critical error because it's not in addition to what it needs to do, which is quite a significant task. It's not running into adversity along the way. And that's really all we can do is do our best. But things like using antioxidant therapy, things like sometimes priming with a bit of hormone like melatonin or DHEA in some cases can improve outcomes in IVF for specific target groups of patients. I may not need all patients to do that in the lead up to treatment. It's important to target any treatment to a person's situation. So if I have a patient who's healthy, relatively young and comes to IVF, for example, with male factor infertility, I wouldn't necessarily use any of the the above except for good nutrition and of course all the supplementation that we know to be of benefit to any person having a baby. So making sure that someone is iodine replete, so their thyroid's functioning well, making sure that someone has enough folate in their system because all dividing cells need folate to optimally function. And we know that that protects babies against neural tube defects happening randomly. I think it's really important that every individual has targeted advice that is pertinent to them. And sometimes, you know, age trumps our perfect situation. We you know, worry that if we defer treatment too long that, you know, somebody's going to have age effects that are, are more serious than others. So if three months delay to treatment is considered at 23, that's no big deal. But at 43, it is. So sometimes it's about making things as good as they can be. Knowing that IVF is not necessarily a one-cycle treatment for many patients and just knowing that those optimal conditions may take about three months to get to. There's also a lot of pre-treatment preparation in IVF and it's really important to recognise that IVF is complicated. It's, it's one of those techniques that people kind of know a lot about but also don't know a lot about leading up to it. Definitely, and that's changing. We see that changing all the time, but it is complicated. It is. So what we're trying to do in IVF is really coordinate a situation to ask your body to go against its every instinct. Its instinct is to make one egg ripen, and what we're asking you to do as a woman is to make lots of eggs ripen at once. And how we do that is using a complex series of medications to override the instructions the brain would normally give to the ovary. And what that entails on a day-to-day level is that you need to be familiar with a certain number of medications required. There's a certain order that they have to be administered in and at particular times of the day consistently. So there's like a treatment diary and a treatment plan that has to be really well understood. And this is unique for every patient, isn't it? Yes, it is. So while principles might be similar cycle to cycle, the actual medication regimen, the different types of medications that are chosen by a doctor are going to be different person to person. So it's not a cookie cutter science. And what that means is that you'll need to learn in a given cycle what regimen you're going to do. And it might, if you're having a second treatment where you've had a first and you've not been ultimately successful, it might be quite different. So there's a bit of a learning curve every time you do a treatment. 
uh, as to what's required during that treatment of you. And it might be learning how to use new medical devices, learning which medications need to be refrigerated and which need to be kept at room temperature, having a system of disposal of injection equipment, so needle disposal equipment, and you know just making sure that you're safe and confident. So there's a degree of pre-treatment education, and that's usually given by our nurses. And um, our nurses are fabulous at, at doing that and at helping patients feel really comfortable and confident knowing what they need to do, but it, it does take a, a bit of time. And um, we're always here to support you if you need to ask a question and we don't expect you to take it on board all at once. So there are several sessions of education and also videos that we provide. And we know that day one is the big thing, day one of your cycle. What happens when you start a cycle? What we mean by day one when we talk about menstrual cycles is the first day of your period. And just like in a natural cycle, it takes roughly two weeks from when you get your period to when an egg is ripened, mature and ready to ovulate. And when we're trying to get multiple eggs to be in that situation, we tend to start trying to override those body hormone signals when you get your period. So usually we ask you to call us when you get your period if you're having a natural cycle start to an IVF treatment. Some women do have a scheduled start, so they might be using something like an oral contraceptive pill to get started on a particular day. Uh, That can be sometimes something we do for someone who doesn't have a regular menstrual cycle or because they need to have treatment within a certain time frame. It might be for personal reasons around work or other commitments. In in that case, we actually probably start with the oral contraceptive pill and then stop it when we want to get the treatment plan going for you so that it's more on your timeline. But for many women, once we've got the education piece in place, you've done all your legislative work, you've done your counselling, you can generally just call with day one of your period. And in that cycle, we'll usually start medicines somewhere between day two and day four ideally closer to day two than day four, but there is some flexibility. And what we're trying to do there is override the signals and get more eggs in play. The first week of treatment is usually dominated by that type of um, agenda. There are different ways of preventing premature ovulation. And that becomes really important in IVF because we're asking you to make multiple eggs. Each egg is contained within a hormone-making follicle And our bodies are tuned to start an ovulation cascade when one follicle makes a certain amount of estrogen hormone. So you can imagine if you have multiple follicles working together, they reach that estrogen peak a lot earlier than one single follicle would if it was working alone. So there are different types of ways we do this in IVF and there are different medication regimens that we can choose but we need to have some form of control over your own brain hormones so that you don't prematurely ovulate in an IVF cycle. So that's kind of the second tier of medication. So we've got the medicine to make the follicles grow and then we've got the medicines to control the cycle. During that kind of first week and into the second week of treatment, we need to monitor how effective things have been and we need to also have the opportunity to change medications mid-cycle if we think things need to change, if we're not happy with how things are going. 
Or if we're totally happy with how things are going, we just check in and we can satisfy ourselves that we are happy with how things are going. So that's pretty much the goal of the first ultrasound is to make sure we're happy with how things are going and to have an opportunity to change things up. At what stage in the two weeks do you tend to have your first scan? It really depends on the person and the length of their natural menstrual cycle, but an average time to have a first scan might be around day eight. Uh, We might do a first scan as early as day six in someone who naturally has a lower ovarian reserve and a shorter cycle. In those women, things tend to happen a little bit faster. Once we've done the first scan, that helps us understand when the best time is to do the next scan. An average second scan might be around day 10, but we might put it off if the first scan shows us that things are going a little bit slower than average. So we tend to make decisions as we go in the way that I practice IVF to tailor the information needs around what's happening in the individual. There are some clinics that have a more standardised approach, but that's how we do things at Women's Health Melbourne. What that means is that really by the time you're having your second scan, usually we're starting to think about when your egg collection is going to be. And occasionally you'll need more than two scans, but that would be the average number of ultrasound attendances that you'd need during a cycle. And when we decide when your egg collection will be, we schedule what's called a trigger medicine. And the trigger medicine is kind of the final drug of the stimulation cycle. And that is to help eggs get ready to release from the wall of the follicle and to start a process called meiosis where they kind of chuck out a little DNA package. The eggs before they go through that ovulation surge exposure, which is simulated by the trigger, are not able to make a baby. They are immature eggs and they are arrested in the first stage of a cell division process called meiosis. Meiosis is a very special type of cell division. It's designed to generate genetic diversity and it only happens in eggs and sperm. And what it does is it takes the DNA that we inherit from our parents Like in other cells in the body, sperm and eggs start out with more DNA than they need to make a baby because when you do make a baby, half the DNA comes from the egg and half comes from the sperm. So we don't want your whole genome in there, we want half. And every egg and every sperm have a different half, a kind of DNA mashup. So meiosis is really important to make sure that only half the DNA is there. And if an egg has too much DNA, it's not going to make a balanced embryo. What happens is... A package of DNA is chucked out around the time of ovulation and a second package is chucked out around the time of fertilization. And when eggs make those big changes, that's where a lot of errors happen randomly. And that's where eggs find it a lot harder to cope at an older age to to make those very big changes. And that's where your other question comes into it a little bit, like the environment of the egg developing can affect how healthy the egg is with its DNA package that it made when you were born or even before. It can do that job better if we give it the best environment because it's not as hard for an egg to function if it's not under external pressures. Once you've had your monitoring, you go for your egg collection, which we call an OPU, which stands for? Oven pickup. Very easy when you say it. Okay, so you go for your pickup and that's usually under twilight or general, it depends on the person. And then what happens there? When you have your egg collection, which is about 36 hours after you have your trigger or thereabouts, sometimes we personalise that coasting time a little bit 
differently person to person, but 36 hours would be the average. We perform the procedure to extract the eggs from your body and they go to the lab. And that day is the day of fertilization. So it's the day we need the sperm or if you're using a sperm donor, the day we warm the sperm. And we inject the sperm into the egg or expose the egg to prepared sperm from the lab and let the fertilization events happen and we can watch them happening. And in our lab, we watch them in an incubator, sophisticated video monitoring incubator called the embryoscope. So retrospectively, we can look at what was happening happening to your eggs at midnight or 2am and know what they were up to. And once we observe them in the morning, we'll usually have one of our scientists call you with an update and that will be to tell you how many eggs have fertilized. And that is kind of the number of eggs usually that that have a, a future that might turn into an embryo. We don't expect every egg to fertilize. It's really important. And one of the things I think in terms of preparing yourself for IVF, it's really important to understand what's normal and what the statistical likelihoods are going to be at these time points because the reality is that the numbers are going to start and go down and down and down. The number of follicles you see on ultrasound may be slightly more than the number of eggs collected. When we collect eggs, they may not be of equal quality and not every egg is going to be a mature egg that can be exposed to sperm. And from there, of those that are exposed to sperm, we don't expect every egg to fertilize. We would expect probably about 60% or 70% of mature eggs to fertilize. Those numbers do go down and down and down, and it is quite normal to take about five eggs to make one embryo. So it's really important in terms of psychologically preparing yourself to just know that, because when it happens, otherwise it can feel like something bad is happening, when in reality that is what we expect it's totally what we expect from a biological standpoint. And it's what happens in your body when you're not watching. Uh, so that's really important to understand the science because it helps you guard yourself emotionally. And when those inevitable stats come your way, you go, oh, yeah, that's what my doctor told me. I was expecting that to happen. Not, oh, my God, what's going on? Am I going to get an embryo? Because the chances are you will get an embryo if you've got a really reasonable number of eggs. But it's usually if you have 10 eggs, I would expect you to make two embryos for a cycle. I wouldn't expect you to make 10. After the OPU, the next phase is the embryo transfer. What, what are the options there? So not everyone will have a fresh embryo transfer. Sometimes we will choose to do a frozen embryo transfer in the next month. For some patients, the OPU is the last physical event of the cycle for them. And that's the same for egg freezing, for example. We might freeze embryos for a variety of reasons. If you are fortunate to have a really great ovarian reserve and you've made a lot of eggs in a cycle, we might decide to do a freeze-all cycle because we don't want you to get something called hyperstimulation syndrome. And we've got an episode coming up on hyperstimulation syndrome. After listening to which, you'll understand exactly why you don't want that to happen. But, you know, that's, that's a consideration in IVF to keep you safe. Sometimes we have to, what I call, segregate the cycle, which means do the making embryos part in one month and do the transfer part in another month. But for many, a fresh embryo transfer will be part of your IVF plan. And we have to, in that instance, support what's called the luteal phase. So the luteal phase is the second half of the menstrual cycle. And when we give IVF drugs, everyone in IVF has what's called a relative luteal phase insufficiency, meaning they don't make enough progesterone 
after an egg collection to optimally support a pregnancy. It's just part of the ovaries dynamic after giving all the drugs. So what we tend to do is give some artificial progesterone support to compensate for that if we're doing a fresh embryo transfer. And usually that will happen the day after your egg collection or at the latest two days after your egg collection, uh, starting some progesterone medicine to supplement what you're making naturally. We've got a few episodes on fresh versus frozen and luteal phase support and we'll link to all of those in the show notes too. So once you've had your embryo transfer, it's the two-week wait. Yeah, so we usually do an embryo transfer on day five after egg collection. We can't usually consider doing one on day six in a stimulated cycle and that's because the lining of the uterus has a limited receptive period or receptivity in the context of having all the medications. Actually, there's a bit more flexibility in a natural cycle. So when we're doing a frozen embryo transfer in a natural cycle, sometimes we do an embryo transfer as early as day four and sometimes we do an embryo transfer for sometimes we do an embryo transfer on day six or seven even. Usual practice and what's best for most people in both a stimulated and a natural cycle is to try and do a transfer on on post-ovulation day five and that just involves gently placing an embryo in your womb and we tend to tend to for most patients do it with you wide awake and it involves a speculum examination a little bit like a pap smear and for most patients it's not uncomfortable there will be some patients who have a cervix that is more what we call stenosed or narrow and some patients who have a uterus that is an unusual shape because of things like fibroids or other anatomical changes and sometimes embryo transfers can be really difficult but usually they're not and usually they don't take long so usually they might take about five to ten minutes to actually physically transfer an embryo. Uh, You can actually take longer coming in having your ID checks doing your consents getting changed so it does take longer actually but the actual transfer part is actually very quick. What we're wanting to do is just make sure that the embryo goes into the thickest part of the uterine lining near the top of the womb And to make sure we place it nicely, it's important to have a full bladder so we can do an ultrasound and see what we're doing while we're doing it in real time. From the time you have an embryo transfer, we generally do a pregnancy test 10 days later. So it's not quite a two-week wait. From that time, about 10 days after an embryo transfer, we can generally pick up a nice signal of pregnancy hormone in a woman's bloodstream if she indeed is pregnant. And then is there anything we need to consider after the two-week wait? Initially, a good sign that a pregnancy is doing everything it should be is seeing that pregnancy hormone double. So sometimes for our reassurance, we have a few blood tests during that time. And then we do an ultrasound when you are six weeks pregnant. When we date pregnancy, we actually, by convention, say a pregnancy is 40 weeks in length and we date it from the time of your last menstrual period. IVF it's a little bit different because we know the embryo transfer date so we know the date that the embryo physically went back and six weeks in terms of your pregnancy dating is actually going to be four weeks after that time and that's when we might do an ultrasound to see a heartbeat and that will tell us that the pregnancy is in the right place inside the uterus and that the baby's developing normally. If you've had a history of something like an ectopic pregnancy in a fallopian tube in the past we might ask you to do a scan a little bit earlier because women who've had 
an ectopic have a higher risk of having a future ectopic, both in natural conception and in IVF. We sometimes like to do a scan just to check that the pregnancy is in the right spot, even though we know that we wouldn't see a heartbeat yet. Raylia, thank you for talking us through the steps of assisted reproductive technology. It's good to know what we are expecting when we begin the process. We've got a lot of questions from our listeners about this topic. So in two weeks' time, we'll have another episode, Preparing for ART Part 2, where Raylia answers your questions. See you in two weeks. To support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr. Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. Listener.